I was um, reading something this week that, that was talking about um, Chris Tomlin, who's wrote, and most of you, I'm, you're probably familiar with the name if you listen to any contemporary Christian music. If, if the name is not familiar to you, the music is, because you hear it all the time. And the second song that we sang this morning was a Chris Tomlin song, and um, it was, it was um, kind of a... a a random piece of, of information that I came across, and, and I'm going to confess to you, I, I can't verify how it was arrived at, but the, but the whole point was said that on any given weekend uh, in around the world that 20 to 30 million Christians will sing a Chris Tomlin song. And that just kind of blew my mind. And, and you know, in the first service we, we did, uh, the choir sang a Chris Tomlin song, uh, we also sang one of Ga- Bill Gaither's hymns, if you're, you know, uh, familiar with that name. And, and there's certainly other names that you could, you could ascribe. But, but I was thinking, and, and John, you, you know, might be able to kind of relate to this as a songwriter. You know, what it must be like to know that something that probably started in your living room or started in a quiet place of writing and meditating and putting together a lyric would be sung by millions of, of people around the world. And, and the point is, and kind of the, the lead-in this morning is just, we just never know what God does with our faithfulness, what, how God will use, maybe to bless one life, maybe to bless millions. It, it's the, the, the numbers and the scope is irrelevant to the, to the call of, of Christ for, for us to be faithful. And we use that to kind of launch into our text this morning in, in 1 Timothy. It's chapter 1, 1 Timothy, words uh, written by Paul in a letter to a small group of people that, are, that, that would be read by millions, as we are doing today. And so I want to read these short verses to you as we kind of talk about this this morning and explore this text. So begin again, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes these words. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy appointing me to his service. Even though I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of the Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, that God would add his blessing today to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that that we'd hear not just with our ears, but with our hearts, your word and the words that are spoken here, that they would be pleasing to you, that we would receive the abundance of your goodness and grace. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. I guess about a week, two weeks ago, Cassie and I were talking, and she asked me a question, just kind of off the cuff, that was something I hadn't thought about for a long, long time. And she said, Dad, what would be your dream job? 
What would be your dream job? Now, the reason that I, I say I hadn't thought about that a long time because, well, first of all, not to kind of get kind of syrupy here, but I love what God's called me to do. Not every day, but most days I love what God's called me to do. So I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what else I would do uh, with my life. But there's a time when I think we grow up with that question. What are we, I mean, how, we ask young people all the time, what are you going to be when you grow up? And from time to time we face opportunities in our life to do different things. And so maybe to pursue a dream job, I don't know. I don't know how many of us would say we have our, our dream jobs, but hopefully most of us find fulfillment in what we do. But anyway, so she'd asked me, and I just hadn't thought about that in, you know, a long time. You know, growing up, like a lot of kids, you know, I played sports. So my dream job, I wanted to be a professional baseball player or a professional football player. And as the years got on and I realized that God had given me some talent, but not that much talent, you know, dreams change and, and directions, uh, directions change. But what's your dream job? And because I do this all the time, you hear this in sermons, I, I Googled it for fun just to see what would come up. Best jobs in America, best jobs for men, best jobs for women, and there's a whole bunch of them. But there were some really interesting jobs that popped up. For instance, a company a little while ago that paid a young woman who was having to be 22 years old, she got paid every night to come to work and to sleep on a luxury mattress and to raid it the next morning. That's a job I could do. <laughs> you come to work and you go to bed. That is perfect. There's a lot of us. Yeah, I've slept on the job in far less circumstance, ideal places than that. Uh, so, so that was one that came up. I, I saw Google Maps. As you use Google Maps, you know, they, they have the, the video and, and pictures of everything. Well, there's a lot of places in Europe they can't get to by car. You know, the Google car, if you've ever seen the picture of the Google car. So they hire... I imagine younger people, I'm just guessing, I don't know, but they hire people to, to ride this kind of tricycle um, prefabbed contraption bike kind of thing that has all the cameras on it. They ride around places in Europe that are inaccessible to cars so they can get the video. That sounds pretty cool. I don't know that I'd have the stamina to do it very long, but that sounds like a pretty cool job. Uh, there was stuff like a, a quality control manager at a chocolate factory which means you test the chocolate. There you go, dream job for some people. You know, those kind of things. Now, the two that, that really jumped out at me was one, there was, I don't know who hires them to do it, but there was some travel company that hired some people to go around the country to stay at luxury resorts and to rate the water slides at the luxury. They got paid to ride water slides. There's your dream job right there. That, that is good. And then... The absolute favorite one that I saw, and this was actually called the world's greatest job. There was a, a, a competition, in, if you will, in 2012. 35,000 people applied for the dream job. A young man by the name of Ben Sutherall won the position. I don't know if any of you have heard of this before, but Ben was paid for six months of work over $100,000, which is kind of a perk right there. But his job was to be the caretaker of Hamilton Island, a, lux uh, uh, a beautiful island off the Great Barrier Reef. Some of you maybe are in on your heads, maybe you've heard of it. And his job for six months was to live in a three-bedroom villa with a beautiful pool 
and to explore the island and the activities and to blog about it, to write about it, and to get some video of his experiences. Basically, he became a publicity manager for this island. For six months, he got to play and write about it, I thought, on a, not a, you know, kind of a tropical island. I, that, that, to me, that's, that's good. Now, to be fair, just to, to kind of paint a fair picture, you know, I've read some of his stuff. It was a lot of work, I and mean, he did a lot of writing things. He also almost died when he got stung by, a, you know, there's some deadly jellyfish out there. So, I mean, it, it had its, some of its drawbacks. I don't want to make it seem like he was just laying in the sand. But, uh, but I thought, that's, that's the kind of job I could, I, could, I could warm up to real fast. The interesting thing is that, that every job that we've talked about, um, even kind of the crazy ones like, you know, a mattress reviewer, the people that make those decisions, the hiring, when Ben Sutherall interviewed, he had to display some of his skill, that he had some talents that fit, that he had some experiences that fit, that made him a fit for this kind of work and for this kind of job. All of us who have gotten a job in our lifetime probably have had to make a case for why you deserve the job, to present the best of your gifts and your talents. In other words, you had to have something on a resume that warranted your consideration and eventual hire for the job that you applied for. That's, that's life. That's, that's what we start to, to teach our kids at a young age, you know, the experiences of life and the opportunities of life. You're, you're building a resume. That sounds a little clinical, but, but, but that's what it is. We've, you know, Ryan started high school this year, and we've had that conversation. Your grades really matter now. Not that they didn't matter before, but they really matter now. Because if you want to go to college, this is going to be looked at. This is going to be part of your application, but it's going to be part of your resume. The things that you do and, and the things that we, we spend our, our lives doing. So if, if you probably, let me say this, have at some point in your life made a resume of the things that you've done. And on a resume, we put our accomplishments. That's really what a resume is. We put the things that we have done that warrant, uh, that, that we're proud of or that warrant some consideration as um, achievements in life. We have to be careful with achievements. You have to be, because sometimes what you consider achievement may not be an achievement to a potential employer. Uh, I was reading resumes for fun, and there's some funny stuff on resumes. Like if you're a high school graduate, that's an achievement. You should be proud of that. But I don't know if it's in your best interest to put, I graduated in the top 66% of my class on a resume. That was a resume. Top 66%. I was in the top two-thirds. You know what? There's nothing wrong with being proud of that. Then maybe you don't want to put that. Or if you're on time most of the time, you're punctual most of the time, that may make you proud, but you probably don't want to put most of the time on a resume. You know, there are things that we're, I saw one that had, I finished high school in 11 years. I thought, mm, yeah, maybe not. But we do have things in our lives that we are proud of. And everything, you know, regardless. I'm, I'm kind of having a little fun. But, but accomplishments, resume boosters, reasons that somebody may want to hire you for your, if not just a job, but maybe even your dream job. Paul, in 1 Timothy, he writes... To Timothy. 
And he says right at verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. That's an interesting phrase, appointing me to his service. As I read that, I read, I thank God that he gave me a job. When God got a hold of Paul's life, he gave him a job. What was Paul's job? Paul became the foremost evangelist and shaper of Christianity, first-generation Christian. He became a planter of churches. He became an author who would become the most read author, one of the most read authors in the history of the world. I want you to think about that. I, I was wrestling with it. The Bible is the best-selling book ever. More Bibles are purchased than any book historically and annually. Still, Paul wrote or is attributed with having written a third of the New Testament. So therefore, using my logic here, Paul is as read as any person that's ever walked the earth. His words have been read. Can you imagine? That's the job he was appointed for, to plant churches, to tell people about Jesus, to shape the faith, to write the theology for those who would be Christ followers. That's his job. That's the service he was appointed to. He also had some drawbacks to his job. He saw the inside of a lot of prisons. He, he suffered at times, but, but he says he considered that nothing compared to what Christ had done for him. So, so that's Paul's job. That's the job he landed. I think Paul would say that became his dream job. He considered it nothing but joy to serve the Lord in this way. And so you think, well, wonder how Paul landed that kind of a job. And the beautiful thing is Paul gives us his resume. 1 Timothy chapter 12 has Paul's resume. And I thought, let's study Paul's resume because maybe it'll tell us what we need to do to land this kind of a job in service of Jesus. Let's look at Paul's resume, beginning at verse 13. Even though I once was a blasphemer. Quality number one, he says, I was a blasphemer. Now, that's our fancy word. That means he talked junk about God. That's what that meant. He, he talked about in, in angry, negative, um, attacking ways about Jesus. He was an attacker verbally of Jesus and those who followed Jesus. We've known people in our life, we all know people in our life who are non-believers, who don't, don't believe and, and, that's, and most people are not angry or attacking about it. But Paul wasn't one of those. He didn't believe in Jesus. And if you believed in Jesus, he was coming after you. And he was going to verbally use his gifts to tear that down. So he's a blasphemer. So there's quality and characteristic number one. But it goes on. He says, number two, I was a persecutor. I was a persecutor. A lot of you know your history of, of Paul. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. And I want you to hear just a couple short verses that are written in both Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9 about Saul, who would become Paul. In Acts chapter 8, it starts like this. He says, on that, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. 
Acts chapter 9. It begins, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Paul will remind us in his own letters of his history before Jesus. Acts, the history of the church, reminds us of his history. He was a persecutor. It wasn't enough for him just to speak words of malice against followers of Jesus. He wanted to commit acts of violence against those who would follow. He wanted to put down this faith. And so he was a persecutor of the church, which goes hands in hand with his next quality. He was a violent man. The verses I read in Acts chapter 7, before those two verses or those snippets that I, I just read from in Acts, it says that Stephen, remember, was the first martyr, that Stephen was stoned on account of his faith in Jesus. And it says that when they laid their cloaks down to stone Stephen, whose feet did they lay them at? Saul's. He was a part of that. And, and more so. So he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was a violent man, but he doesn't stop there. No, 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 no. He says that in his mercy he was shown, or God showed him mercy because he was also ignorant and had no faith. He was an unbeliever, unbelief. So we add those. He was ignorant. How many have ever put that on their resume? I'm dumb as a rock. Not usually something we put. That's kind of what he says. I was dumb. And I was unbeliever. And then because every resume needs to have something, you want to have something in your resume that speaks to, to a quality about you or a talent about you or a gift about you that maybe is better than anyone else. Not in an arrogant way, but you want to kind of highlight the best, what you can do maybe that nobody else can do or that you can do that is better than what anyone else can do. And Paul's no different. His resume says, this is what I was better than everybody else at. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. Because no matter how bad a sinner you are, I was better at it. No matter how far away from God you were, I was further. No matter how evil the intentions of your heart were, mine were worse. He says, of the sinners, man, I was, I was the best. That's Paul's job resume. That's what Paul says are the skills that I brought into this faith. Those are the skills I brought into the call of God on my life to be an evangelist and a teacher and a proclaimer of the good news to be in God's service. That's what he says I was called from. And there's not a person in their right mind, not one of us sitting in this room, that if had we lived in the time of Paul, that would have chosen him for this job. In fact, if you remember, when he did come to faith in Christ, the disciples stayed away because they were scared to death. They thought, you know what? God is a tremendous God of grace, but this is too much. This guy's too far away. This guy's done too much. He's committed too much violence. There's no way this is real. They couldn't even believe Jesus could get this guy's life turned around. But that's exactly what the history of our faith and the letters of Paul and the teachings of the church testify to, that Paul was turned around, that the one who was the furthest from God became the vehicle through which God's grace would be shared. And that makes perfect sense at another level. I mean, who better to talk about the power of God to turn a life around than somebody who was so far away from God to begin with? I, I, in a very different and certainly much less significant scale, I was, I was reading, I don't know if the name Frank 
Um, Abigail is familiar to any of you. Do you know that name? Did you see the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio a few years ago, Catch Me If You Can? I think Tom Hanks was in it. Did you see that? That's Frank Abagnale. He was the young man who was an imposter. He, he pretended to be a surgeon and got into hospitals. Uh, a chief resident, I believe. I don't even know how you do that. Uh, he pretended to be an airline pilot and flew planes. Uh, he did some other things. He wrote bad checks. I mean, he, he was... I don't know, maybe this was evil in his intention, but he was outside the law, let's put it that way. And when he finally got caught, he spent five years in prison. But when he got out of prison, you know who hired him? The FBI. The FBI hired him. Who better to help them understand the mind of a criminal, the mind of an imposter, the mind of a, of, of a thief, than somebody who's been there? And I think he's worked for the FBI in some capacity ever since, or maybe he's retired now, I don't know but in a far more significant way. That's what Paul is. I mean, who better to talk about the grace of Jesus Christ than one who was so far away from it? And that's exactly what Paul says. He says in verse 14, the grace of the Lord was poured out on me abundantly. You think? Persecutor? Violent man? Blasphemer? Ignorant in his unbelief, proclaimer of Jesus Christ. How much more visible can the grace be? And if that was the significant part of the story, that would be enough. But Paul says there's another reason that he was chosen. In verse 16, for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. God poured into Paul, not only for Paul's sake, because he wanted Paul to be an example. He wanted to make it abundantly clear to all of us who will follow afterward that if I can do this for Paul, I can do it for you. He said, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people over the years who have said to me, I don't know how God could forgive me. I don't know how God could love me. If you knew the things I had done, if you knew the things I had said or the ways I had behaved or even the things that I think, there's no way God could love me. And Paul says, want to bet? Let me tell you about where I was. And God's grace covered me. It reminds us, you can't get too far from God. You can't get so far that you're out of his reach, that you're beyond his pull. You aren't getting further away than Paul was. I promise you that. And God got a hold of him. He gets hold of you. But it also reminds us of this, that God calls us not on the basis of our talent, but on the power of his grace. Paul's life had nothing in it that would lead him to Christian service. He was talented. Now, he had gifts, as we all do. He had gifts, but he hadn't done a darn thing his entire life in the service of Jesus Christ. He had nothing that would say, this man was qualified to do the things that he did. But once God's grace got a hold of him, God's passion lit him up. 
And I'll tell you what God seeks are men and women of passion. Men and women who desire in their hearts to be faithful. Not simply men and women who have a lot of talent, a lot of gifts, or a lot of knowledge. Because I want to tell you really honestly, I've met a lot of people in my life who could quote Scripture better than anybody you can imagine. Who knew the Bible forward and backwards and with their life did very little good with it. And I have known people who could barely quote John 3.16, who couldn't tell you anything about theology, couldn't explain the deepest teachings of the faith, but they knew this, Jesus loved them, and Jesus called them to love other people, and they changed the world with that knowledge. It is not about this. It's about this. God got hold of Paul's heart. That's what changed the world. His, his knowledge, his skill, his talent, that mattered. That helped. But it was his heart that allowed him to change the world. God does the same for us. And man, he gets hold of us. And he uses us to be world changers. That may change the lives of thousands. It may change the life of one. It doesn't matter. But God reminds us it's not about what you've done. It's about what I can do through you. It's not about the mistakes you've made because in Christ those get wiped away. But it's about what I desire to pour into your life to let that just be the, the prologue for what is yet to come. That is the significance of Paul's resume. Nothing about Paul qualified him for this except one thing. He had received the grace of Jesus Christ. In your baptism, in your coming to faith, in your acceptance of Christ, when that day comes, if it hasn't, you receive the same grace that is available to you that Paul received. You receive the same gift of the Holy Spirit that Paul received. And God can do amazing things through you and me, just like he did from Paul, for Paul, no matter where you've come from, regardless of your experience or lack thereof, because it is not necessary, not for what God wishes to do. His name was John. John was a sailor. And John was angry with God would be an understatement. John renounced any faith in God. John lived at a time when faith was pretty prominent. But he had renounced all faith in God. He spoke angrily about anyone else who had faith in God. And if you knew John's childhood and his experiences, you might understand why he felt so angry toward God. But John also had a gift. He had a way with words. He could write poems and he could write songs. The problem was he used that gift to write the most obscene words and the most obscene poems and the most obscene songs that you could imagine. And he would teach them to other sailors so they could sing his obscene songs and recite his obscene poems. In fact, one of John's captains said that he was the most vilest and profane man he had ever met. That he used the worst language and the worst words he had ever heard. And when he didn't have words that were filthy enough for what he wanted to communicate, he had a gift for making up his own words to communicate the debauchery and the darkness of his soul. Did I mention he was a sailor? He could make a sailor blush. That's how far from God he was. Not only that, he profited off the suffering of others. But in his 20s, 
while he was sailing, things began to change. And he began to feel the tug of God on his life. He didn't instantly submit to it. It was a process. But by the age of 40, he was an ordained priest in the Church of England. In 1773, John, in the anticipation of in preparation for a sermon that he was going to preach, decided to write a song as a sermon illustration. And John took his talent for words and his talent for poetry that had once been used to write obscene lyrics, and he wrote a new lyric. And this is the word, these are the words he put on the paper in anticipation of that sermon in 1773. In reviewing his own life, he wrote this Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. John Newton wrote those words. The sailor who had profited in the slave trade, who had spoke angrily for much of his life about God, and he would pen the words to, to what very well might be the most familiar and beloved of all our Christian songs. John Newton was about as far from God as you could get. Paul was about as far from God as you can get. And there are stories of countless others who God has used to change the world. He still does. He still does. Don't delude yourself into thinking that your resume matters. Because what matters is the grace of Jesus Christ, which is offered to you, whether you have grown up in the church or this is your first time in the church. Your experience is not what matters. God's grace that is freely given is what makes the difference. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, for an amazing grace that transforms us, that, that, that uses us to your glory, that, that works through us in spite of ourselves sometimes, and that wipes a slate clean. We give you thanks. Ignite in us a passion, a passion for Christ and a passion for faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.